in that weird perineum between the actual US election and the declaring of the US election, I'm actually speaking remotely to Josh Dean, a real American. Josh is a journalist, author, and a podcast host. In the past, he's hosted The Clearing, but currently he's hosting a podcast I'm completely obsessed with, which is Chameleon Hollywood Con Queen. Hi, Josh. Hello. Okay. I both want to know absolutely everything about Chameleon Hollywood Con Queen and nothing because I haven't, because I'm like five episodes in and I'm obsessed. Can you just give a little bit of a of a summary for people? So Chameleon is the story of this incredible con that's been going on, we think, at least five and maybe as many as seven or eight years in which some group of people or one person or I don't want to give too much away from the show for people who haven't listened, mm. but someone or some group has been um, orchestrating this incredible scam. And basically um, a certain level of Hollywood person, we call it below the line. So it's sort of lower level makeup artists and right. security guards and stuntmen are lured into flying to Indonesia for what they think is the job of a lifetime. It's, it's a, huge movie or a major TV show that's filming there. And you're going to get the job that's several levels above the job that you, that you're typically going to get. If you're working at all, it's going to change your life. It's going to be amazing. They get to Indonesia and realize it's all a scam, but not after, not until for several days, they've been sort of jerked around and money's been taken for fees and drivers and various guides. And um, you'd think it's the kind of thing that would work once or twice or that almost no one would fall for this. And we believe more than a thousand people have, have, flown to Jakarta, Indonesia, at the behest of what they think is, and this is the part of it that's really interesting. I mean, there's so much about it. That's oh, interesting. But so much. It's a very powerful woman that they think they're talking to, like a studio head or a producer. So people like Amy Pascal, former head of Sony Pictures, or Deb Snyder, producer of Wonder Woman, this is the call that they're getting. So it's not like they're flying to Indonesia just because some random person emailed them. They think they're talking to one of the most powerful women in Hollywood. So it's you're at a certain level where you're looking for a break and you think you're talking to the person who can give you the break. So you're willing to make this leap. And it's just this incredible twisty story that's been going on now for all these years. And the con artist is very much still at it. Oh, I've been gobsmacked listening to it. And partly because some of the fraud stories and stories of liars, I like one step down from big global scandal. I really like these things that have been people have been getting away with for years and they're kind of low level but equally nefarious. I love this. I couldn't – I've had mouth drop open moments several times while listening. Well, well I think that's going to continue. It, the story gets, gets wilder and, and part of our – you know, it's the story of the scam and, and trying to find the perpetrator behind it. So it, it turns into a bit of a whodunit and a bit of a, you know, without giving too much away, what we're trying to do our part to stop the thing. Oh, oh my God. Okay. Unfortunately, we're not talking about that particular scammer, but for the rest of this, but can you tell me who we're talking about today? So yeah, we'll save that con artist for a future yeah. episode <laughs> because we don't know we don't know who that is yet, right? <laughs> yeah. Today we're we're going to talk about um, an American named 
Keith Ham, uh, aka Swami Bhaktipada, who um, was a notorious—I think it's fair to call him a notorious now. Oh yeah, Harry Krishna, Harry Krishna leader um, from the 1970s through the 1990s. I notice also you because he, he's got three names, and you avoided the one that I've been practicing, which is Kirtan <laughs> Ananda Swami. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, which actually Kirtan Ananda Swami was, I believe, the name he had until he earned the title Bhaktipada. I believe yeah. it was a promotion at some point. Ugh. And I was astounded. I mean, I'll get into his background in a sec, but I didn't realize that the Hare Krishna movement, or Ishkorn, if you use the official acronym, is it's an entirely American. It's spread globally, but it's. It was invented in America. It's not this long tradition of uh, mystic Indian faith. It's relatively recent and started in the U.S. It, it, it's true. I mean, you know, I think they would argue that it's based on these sort of ancient practices. Because, and the founder, um, Swami Prabhupada, who came from uh, India as just sort of as a pauper, you know, this mm. is, I guess, a version of the fabled American success story. An Indian man arrives with no money in New York City in, I think, 1966, sets up shop in a grimy, terrible, crime-ridden East Village in a storefront and basically starts a religion. Yeah, he, A global you know, multi-million dollar religion. Exactly. And he does it, yeah, with no money out of a storefront. Of course, it was like the perfect moment, late 1960s. Yeah. It was like, you know, wearing bright clothing and singing and dancing. Absolutely. And you can imagine how it started to catch on. But let's start with the uh, really imaginatively named Keith Ham, because that's really, <laughs> that's, <laughs> this story centers around him. I, in my study of cults, I am always delighted by the pedestrian names before people rename themselves. Good old Keithy. And Keith was born in 1937 in Peekskill, New York. Would you like to know a fact about Peekskill? I would love to. Mel Gibson was born and raised in Peekskill. I didn't realise that he was even born in the US. His family moved to Australia in the late 60s. What? Yes. Mel Gibson, Mad Max Mel Gibson? Mel fucking Gibson, Mad Max. That's the one. Born, same place as Keith. Whoa. Uh, so was Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens, and Stanley Tucci. So you get the – it's the whole spectrum, really. <laughs> um, and Keith was the son of a conservative Baptist minister. And to prove he was a, just a party guy from early on, he tried converting some of his school classmates to baptism. That was where he got his practice in, really. Yeah, yeah. His father was an evangelical. Yeah, I think he said he grew up, you know, basically being having the Bible just like drilled into him. Yeah, which is those people are always the most fun at parties. Completely. Uh, and he's been he had polio when he was seventeen. He's been kind of sickly a lot of his life, and did really, really well at school and quite well at university. But he did have to leave University of North Carolina because, and this was surprising, same-sex sexual activity was still technically illegal in North Carolina until 2003. It, 
<laughs> well, I mean, that's surprising to me. You sound like it's. Oh, I, I mean, no, I'm la- I'm laughing both because it is surprising. We're talking about what 17 years ago. I mean, it's it's embarrassing as an American, also. But but again, you know, I don't know how much your Australian listeners or you know various parts of the world. North Carolina is part of the Southern United States, although it's <laughs> yeah. it's, in, it's in the middle South, so I, it's not a deep South state. There are still laws like that on the books, I believe, in some of the southern states today. Certainly, think I've you know I've heard sodomy is illegal in certain states, and like you mm. know, I think oral sex is illegal in certain. Like, of, of course, these are not laws that are are enforced anymore. No. but they're still on the books. But for Keith, it was a problem. Yes, um, Keith. Later in his life, he referred to himself as an ex-homosexual. But it's it's funny how religion and law don't just let people, you know. Be who they want to be, put their bits into who they want to put their bits into. But that gets a little bit complicated a bit later in our story. But basically, he and uh, he had a relationship there with, his, with Howard Wheeler, who remained his friend, and in some articles, friend is in inverted commas, for the rest of his life. Uh, but he was asked to leave. And then this is a bit of a cliche. He moved to New York City, became a bit of an LSD guru (laughs) and um, visited India to see if he could find an actual guru. And it was just that whole... disillusioned people in their late teens trying to find themselves and finding drugs and Eastern mysticism. And that's where he met in 1966, Swami Prabhupada. Tell us about him. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you didn't try and say his first I'm not going to try and say his first name either. No, no. Let's just call him, let's I call think him it's, Swami. It's more respectful for us not to. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Yeah. So... Swami Prabhupada is the man I was referring to earlier. He was this Indian man who arrived in New York City as an immigrant with no money, opened a storefront in the East Village um, where he began to teach the um, story of Krishna. Um, So it it was rooted in Indian, and I'm not a Hindu scholar, so I don't know, you know, apologies to I only am for the last three days, so. (laughs) Apologies to (laughs) Hindus. I don't know a lot. The relationship between... Harry Krishna and, and, and Hinduism is, um, you know, how, how tenuous it is, I'm not completely sure. But he wasn't just making – my point is he wasn't just making this up out of thin air. So, but he, he was teaching a book, the Bhagavad Gita, I believe it's called. Um, uh, Bhagavad Gita, yes. Bhagavad Gita, sorry. Um, and Krishna was the deity. So it wasn't like, you know – Joseph Smith finding gold tablets in no. his backyard, completely inventing a religion, basically. Like he was bringing over stories and those stories resonated. But what's interesting about this is that, you know, you think of 19, late 1960s, you heard, you know, we were just talking about how Keith Ham had been an LSD guru mm. of sorts. He he came, you know, he was a homosexual. He clearly was, inter- he came from a Baptist family. So at that time would have been considered somewhat radical sexuality. So you would think a guy like that, he's going to go to a, a sect or a religion or a cult that's all about free love and drugs. And there were plenty of options for that in 1960s New York. Like you did not need to look very hard to find a place to take lots of drugs and have lots of sex. However, this guy is not promising that. What he's promising is 
you know, a way to transcend by giving up all of that. So becoming a Hare Krishna meant that you couldn't drink, you couldn't smoke, you couldn't take drugs, there's no caffeine, and there's no extramarital sex. And by giving all that up, then you can be a truly spiritual individual. I know. that's. I do want to get into the head of some 60s and 70s hippies to just go, why these religions where you just, you renounce all this stuff? It's a weird, it feels like Keith was rebelling against his strict practice upbringing and then just going, "Mm, but I really like strict rules. I'm used to strict rules. So a way to sort of surround yourself with the comfort of completely limiting what you're allowed to do feels like home. But (laughs) I, so I did a bit of, background into the whole Hare Krishna movement. And I should say Hare Krishna is really a colloquial uh, way of referring to the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, which is Ishkon for short. It is based on worshipping Krishna is nothing new. Hinduism is basically, you know, it's a almost a blanket term for some monotheistic and some polytheistic religions. Krishna is basically a cool guy that you mostly worship through dance and song and chanting, and that's, that is ancient. But the Hare Krishna movement is Prabhupada's version of that. And so the main practices are, and can I just thank you for putting the Hare Krishna mantra in my head for the last two weeks, <laughs> you bastard. It's it I I should have reached a higher level of enlightenment by now because that is my earworm for this fortnight. I, I'm sorry, but you know better that than or I was going to say better that than being stuck staring at a map of the United States and waiting for <laughs> colors. So but maybe you're also doing that. It's been weirdly meditative. What a combo! Also, before I get into the Hare Krishna practices, can you let me know why you chose? this as the cult to cover today yeah it's interesting because when when we when you asked me if there was one i was like i I don't i can't think of anything that i'm like there's like of course i'm obsessed with all cults and i've watched Mm. every documentary and i always want to talk about but i was like there's not one and then i thought oh wait yes actually there is because i spent part of my youth in west virginia we're going to get to that right where you know i'll just quickly cutting to the the chase that there's a big quite famous um, temple, Harry mm. Krishna Temple in West Virginia that we're going to talk about in a bit. So, and I visited it in my teen years, I believe. And, you know, again, we'll talk, we'll talk more about it, but it's the spectacular place. And it was so anachronous and weird to be in the middle of West Virginia, yeah. which, which is a rural, very um, wooded, sparsely populated state. That's not known for having a diversity of religions. Yeah, and- we've, we've heard John Denver, we know. So coming upon it and then for for a brief period there, I became obsessed with who built this place. Yeah. And in the process of learning who built this place, I heard about Keith Ham because I thought, oh, it's just a Hare Krishna place. But it's, it, it, you know, we're going to talk about the very interesting and uh, quite dark history of things that happened there. And so I thought, who was this guy? And, and he's always been in my head as I, you know who is this person and how did he become this way? And how did this thing end up in West Virginia? So when I thought more than five minutes about who should we talk about, I was like, oh, we should do Keith Ham. Yes. 
And also I've had, so I've had the, I've had a map of the US in front of me. I've had the Hare Krishna mantra in my head, but that's kind of a mashup with old Black Betty, Keith Ham. Um, <laughs> but then that's just how things work. So Hare Krishna practices and Prabhupada was kind of smart about spreading the word once he got to New York, partly focusing on the hippie movement. But then he relocated to San Francisco and things spread to England because he published pamphlets and things and they kind of targeted the Beatles, thinking that they were they were right for some Eastern mysticism. And so George Harrison wrote My Sweet Lord about the Hare Krishna movement and Honestly, once the Beatles get on board, you're away. Look at how popular octopuses are now. <laughs> um, so that's why all the submarines are yellow now. That's right, all of them. <laughs> so with Hare Krishna practice, you chant. We've all heard it. It's been in my head for a couple of weeks. There's a lot of meditative practice, and you chant Krishna's name on a rosary. Probably for it takes about two hours to do that properly. There's offerings to a statue or image of Krishna with prayers and songs and more chanting. And the four rules that you mentioned before: one is a vegetarian diet, which ironically, you know, no ham. <laughs> and terrible name for a vegetarian. Terrible name. No wonder he changed it. No intoxicants, so no alcohol, cigarettes, drugs, tea, coffee. No gambling, which oh, with American elections, you really want to kick yourself there. And the no illicit sex. So none of the fun sex, only the uh, pro- marital, yes. marital procreative sex. I, know, I don't think it has to be procreative. It just has to be with your marital, your spouse. Yeah. And it's once a month after chanting for six hours, which really, <laughs> it just gets you on the boil, doesn't it? All that chanting. Yeah. And I had a look but, on Krishna.com to just check that I had these rules right. And it, it, I found some tips for making yourself less horny. And one of them is meditating on the beautiful form of Krishna, beginning with his lotus feet, helps free the mind from lust. Maybe I'm into lotus feet. Uh, some people are really into feet. I mean, I don't know about lotus. It's a very specific kind of foot fetish, I guess. Yeah. But you're right. It should have started with like an elbow or something. Oh, no, elbows get me going. Um, <laughs> but it also, one of the, my favorite sentences from that was, uh, there are also foods that can be avoided. Don't eat too many grains or yogurt at night. Don't eat lots of rich foods like cashew nuts. This causes nocturnal emissions. <laughs> like, can you not have wet dreams either? Is that illicit? I I'm confused. Yeah, apparently not. You're, every part of you must be chased. Oh, yeah. Every sperm is sacred. Uh, by the way, I think you were talking about the chanting. Uh, I think the number is 1,728 times a day. Oh. That you have to do the chant. You would think. See, they do make it easy, though. There's only 16 words in it. It's not like it's. They imagine. Should, they should base a religion where you have to chant Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. <laughs> oh I don't God. think you can get through that 1,728 times a day No, true, maybe four times But what a religion, can I just say We would attract uptown girls I'll stop that <laughs> So, Keith 
he joins this and I think he was the fastest to become an actual Swami uh, in a not very long history of the Hare Krishna movement. Yeah, he became the first, I think, you know, I, I don't, this is not an official term, but he was like the deputy. I think he was Prabhupada's right-hand man. Um, yeah, the first to ascend to the Swami status and then, you know, became his closest confidant. Although we don't know a lot. I, um, Not a lot is known about their relationship. Mm. He clearly took him under his wing. Oh, yes. And there was, because because Prabhupada was already pretty old when he started the movement, there were quite a few sub-swamis, let's just wing it, who were, and no real succession plans. So no one had been identified as the person that should take over when the main swami, the head swami, boss swami died. So everyone's doing all this stuff to try and establish themselves. And there's some Wondery podcast uh, called the Hare Krishna murders. Ah, spoiler. And it really goes into a lot of the things that people were trying to get Prabhupada's attention. And it's extraordinary. It's this real power grab. I think that one of the things that reading about Keith Ham has done is changed my image of the Hare Krishna movement as this sort of gentle, quiet, reverent thing. There's all sorts of shit going on. Certainly in that era. I mean, I think there are like lots of sweet, kind, gentle Hare Krishnas today and, and at that time. And, you know, I think he was probably that era. If you were to talk to a Krishna scholar, I would probably say like, the, you know, the blight upon the, the religion was certainly after Prabhupada's death when, as you said, yeah, it was like a Game of Thrones. Yes. Ele- eleven. I believe there were 11 of them, disciples, yeah. sort of main swamis who all were vying then for power, essentially, to become the, you know, and it's, this happens, in, you know, in so many religions and, and cults and sects where the power is so intoxicating that like all the other like stuff you're supposed to be caring about is so secondary to achieving power. There was already sort of drugs and sex involved, which we'll touch on, but they should have just gone with the ultimate decider, which is always a dance-off. It's just well, obvious well, in hindsight. I mean, that would have worked. Also, the Electoral College is a great Obviously, way. Obviously, everybody loves it. <laughs> everybody loves it. This, I think this happens when so much power is consolidated in one person's hands. And, and it does seem like Prabhupada himself was quite a peaceful man and, and was legitimately you know, probably trying to do something spiritual and transcendent. And then some of these other people came to him with a lot of baggage. And then when he was gone, they, a lot of them, you know, went to their sort of the bad parts of their personality started to ascend. Yep. And Keith was one of them. He immediately started to try and Westernize the Krishna movement. So chanting in English and saying that everybody's going to heaven or wherever. And because of that, he kind of fell out a bit with Prabhupada. And to try and get back into his good books, he once he'd seen a, a notice in an alternative newspaper that a guy in West Virginia was offering land to really cheaply to anyone willing to start an ashram there, he went, mm, 
this will really impress everyone and get me back in the good books. And so he secured the property and named it New Vrindavan after a holy site in India. Take me to your And this was with plans to build the temple you mentioned, but I love this from The Independent. It says, initially costing $500,000, money for the site was raised largely by Curtin Ananda's followers who sold baseball caps and bumper stickers adorned with counterfeit sporting logos along with copyrighted and trademark logos. So he's selling like sports team merchandise and Disney cartoon characters and Snoopy caps and bumper stickers. Good it's grief. Like Canal, Canal Street in Chinatown here in New yeah, York. It's yeah. Like, yeah, like knock off. Yeah. Knock off branded stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, the quick version of that is that he moved out there yeah, to prove himself to Prabhupada and it was initially just like a rural compound. They were just living, you know, it was almost like a commune and mm. they had because cows are very sacred, just like in Hinduism, Krishna's revere cows. Uh, but then, you know, very quickly, they decide to build this temple as a, as a shrine, but not just as a shrine, because Prabhupada was going to live there. It was meant to be both a temple and his house. Mm. And um, so the money, yeah, they need to raise money, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to build this compound and then this temple, which is, um, I'm sure you've seen pictures now. Oh, it's amazing. And I'll put some up on the zealot. Facebook page because, oh, gorgeous. Just I mean, so fancy. It's, yeah, it's, well, it's been called America's Taj Mahal. And this is when I said, you know, when I got fascinated with Keith's story, I went to this place. So basically, you know, to, to, to explain West Virginia to people, it's mm. very sparsely populated, extremely wooded, quite mountainous. Um, you know, the reputation is that it's kind of backwards and rednecky. And that is true to some extent, but it's a, it's a really interesting and, and, different than almost any other place in America. But you drive down these like wooded lanes outside this sort of small, now fairly depressed community, an old industrial town. And then out of nowhere, you're on like a dirt road and suddenly there's this like gilded temple. It's built out of marble and teak and gold leaf and, you know, onyx. And it's just like a mirage almost. And it was built by hand, by Krishnas, who who taught themselves construction using books. And on the job, wasn't it? They just went, mm, oh, we need to put this marble somewhere. How do we do marble? Let's find out. Without the internet, I might add. I was going to say, before the internet, they yeah. had to actually use books. There's... But And I think no plans, so there was no architect. I mean, and it kind of reflects that, and I suspect it leaks, and there's all kinds of problems. <laughs> but they just, I mean, I think that... It, the remarkable thing is the total cost was something like $800,000, whereas it w- would have been millions upon millions if it had been built by real yeah. contract. But don't um, you hate it when you spend all this money on a gold marble and teak palace and you have to put a bucket under the cracks when it rains? <laughs> but it's, it's also, you know, it's weird. It, it, weird is you know it's slightly creepy because there are these very lifelike um wax sculptures of Prabhupada in there now I assume they're still there they were there the last time I was there 20 years ago Mm. but um so you know after he died it became a temple to him but it was also yeah like I said it was going to be his house it didn't look like a very comfortable place to live you know like marble these are not like marble floors and and antique walls and it looks cool yeah and I think adding adding the word creepy to the phrase wax statue is just that's a tautology but it's <laughs> they were calling it a spiritual disneyland and it's over four thousand acres and we've got terrace gardens a live elephant a swan boat fountains 
and it drew hundreds and thousands of tourists. So it's making a lot of money. I think they made $10 million from counterfeit stuff and then kept making money. And you can still visit it. And admission is $7.50 for adults and $3.50 for children. Thank you, Palace of Gold website. 60 miles from Pittsburgh. So if you're going to fly in, if you, if anyone listening wants to fly to America, well, you can't now because we're like ravaged by disease. Yeah. But for some, in, a, in, a, in a mystical future where it's safe to visit America again, you can fly to Pittsburgh and it's about 60 miles. Pre-buy your tickets now because they'll be cheap. Interestingly, the Palace of Gold website does not mention Keith and he project managed this whole thing. It doesn't mention his involvement at all. Which hmm, you'd want to, you'd want at least a little thank you, I think. <laughs> well, I'm not sure he's remembered fondly by the residents of New Vrindavan today. We should get into that. So, okay, yeah, uh, it started the bad stuff. This is my heading in my notes: the bad stuff. And it, it, I suppose, the beginning of the bad stuff is just the fact that that Keith pissed off Ishcon management. I mean, the actual movement. He pissed them off because he he wanted to do things his own way. And I was reading all this stuff and I was going, mm, that doesn't sound too bad. And then as soon as I saw an interview, a Larry King interview with Keith, I just immediately went, oh, what an asshole. He just, I really understood it then that it was all about Keith he did the classic things, claiming religious persecution whenever anyone criticised him. He was power hungry and he was an egomaniac. I'm sure you've never heard this story before on your show. And never. <laughs> Brand new stuff for me. It's weird. It took me ages to get used to. So in the 80s, he's excommunicated and they say because they were disturbed by his sharp deviation from the movement's principles and suspicions of criminal activity. He kind of wanted to de-Indianize, if I can say that, the movement, making it more accessible to Westerners, I assume because he liked money. And on the Larry King interview, he said, my views became a little too liberal for them. Like I refused to think that we're the only ones going to the happy land. But in the same interview, he compares his situation and persecution with that of Jesus Christ and Socrates. Again, just so unusual for this podcast. These guys are usually so humble, I'm shocked. So humble. Um, and he was even saying that they wanted to excommunicate him and kick him out of New Vrindavan because there was coal underneath the temple and they wanted to mine it. <laughs> it's so Trumpy of him. Well, I mean, speaking of cult leaders. Yes. Uh, yeah, I might be doing an episode on that. He, I, I mean, he, he basically, I think in the interfaith era is what they called that, right? Where he, yeah, he decided he mm. was going to broaden it and they were going to build like a, a, a interfaith, a temple for other religions. And he sort of like lost the whole map of what he was supposed to be doing. I think it was just like, he was like imagining himself more as like emperor of this new Vrindavan. Yes. You know city-state and you know that's a great gonna... way of putting it there's a quote from a chicago tribune article 
that, and the article starts with, with a blonde youngster reverently massaging his foot and a massive guard dog beside him, the Swami delivered a sermon full of darkness and foreboding. And he's like saying things like, get ready for a war. Oh, Trump again. And he's on a gold covered throne. I just, if you're on a throne, if your religion involves listening to someone sitting on a throne, have a little look at where the money goes, maybe. But around the same time, there was also a book that came out called Monkey on a Stick, Murder, Madness and the Hare Krishnas. That's by John Hubner and Lindsay Grusin. And they were claiming that he was a cult leader. So while he's still in power, he's being accused of being a cult leader. And that probably brings us to bad guy Thomas Drescher. What a fun <laughs> thug he was. Yes, the enforcer. Oh, it was hard to – did you have trouble here kind of figuring out the timeline because there were some court cases happening well after bad things happening and there was claims of arson and fraud and racketeering and all this sort of stuff. But where should we start? Well, basically when, when – yeah, when Keith started to – there was a schism in the group basically I think and that some people wanted to continue to follow the traditional – well, the traditional beliefs going all the way back to 1966, mm. um, just just years upon years of history and tradition that they needed to adhere to. Uh, and then he, yeah, he was trying to, well, I, whatever you want to call it, modernize something that's already modern, you know, mm. turn it into more something that will probably make money for him and consolidate power for him. And But at the same time, the whole place was, you know, there were people doing drugs and and, and having extramarital sex all the things they weren't supposed to do were happening and then there were allegations of child abuse that that inside the the where the children were being educated that there was child molestation going on which is now we know confirmed because the one of the headmasters at the time i believe fled to india after you know i should say that this sheriff of marshall county which is the county in which this temple mm. resides was had a chip on his shoulder about the Krishnas probably from the beginning, but then in this era gets really focused on them because bad things start to happen. Yeah. And so Drescher, who you referenced, um, gets involved. He's been described in certain places as the enforcer of the commune. And um, there's a murder that takes place. The, the first murder is of a guy named Charles St. Dennis, who's, who's shot and stabbed and, beaten with a hammer and then wrapped in plastic and buried under a creek and then, not far from and then dissolved in acid just oh yeah right i forgot yeah. the acid don't forget the acid please it's a long list i know but uh, so dresser yeah dresser and one other guy i was about to say allegedly but i think he later yeah. either confessed to it or was convicted um basically the murder victim saint dennis had had been having an affair with the wife with the other guy's wife whose name i now forget read um, Yes, Reed's mm -hmm. wife. And Reed, according to Drescher's testimony later, went to um, Ham for permission and said, I would like to kill my wife's lover. And according to, again, according to Drescher, the enforcer, he was given permission that Swami Bhaktipada, a.k.a. Keith Ham, said that that was permitted under some, you know, I don't know if that's like an asterisk in, the, in yeah. one of the bylaws somewhere, that you're allowed to kill your wife's lover. Oh, if yeah, if Boss Swami's given you the okay. And that's, I think, the only thing still, there's a couple of things that are kind of 
alleged but generally agreed occurred and one of them is that there was fairly widespread child abuse in a lot of Hare Krishna communes and that Keith Ham had had pre-knowledge of and approved some murders and yeah the more I read about things the more I thought I'm willing to believe that he did know about things because at one point Keith and Thomas Drescher who was definitely less of the chanty and more of the violent thug side of <laughs> of life. They were taken to court for arson and fraud, so they're accused of burning down one of their apartment buildings to collect insurance. And Keith was found innocent and whinged about religious persecution, but Drescher was found guilty of malicious burning, so he's starting his history. And by 1990... Keith is indicted for three things, and I like to do it in an escalating way. So the first one, five counts of racketeering, so for raising millions of dollars through uh, Snoopy Caps. Doesn't (laughs) Snoopy Caps sounds like a street name for a drug? It does. Um, The six counts of mail fraud, which is posting Snoopy Caps, and for conspiracy to murder. So Charles and Dennis was murdered in 1983, Stephen Bryant in 1986. And in a nutshell, the story is that it's because for their own reasons, St Dennis and Bryant were challenging Keith's leadership and spreading spreading bad stories about him. People are so sensitive. Well, Brian, yeah, right. Bryant especially, I, I believe, uh, wrote a book. That that was going to like describe. Well, actually, I think it it was self published, maybe right. A guru business or something. So from the Charlestown Gazette, uh, Charleston. I don't know Charleston. how to say things. Charleston. Charleston Gazette. Uh, it says a member of a Hari. This is 1996, but a story about it says a member of a Hari Krishna fringe group testified Wednesday that he tracked down a dissident in Michigan and attached a bumper sticker onto the man's van to let him know that he was being watched weeks before the man's execution-style slaying. Uh, Thomas Drescher said he placed the sticker which said, Are we having fun yet? on the van of Stephen Bryant before tracking him down in 1986 in Los Angeles, where he shot Bryant twice in the head. I mean, if you're going to get murdered, it's it's kind of whimsical to be warned about it on a bumper sticker. <laughs> Who among us would not interpret that signal as, oh, my God, I'm about to be murdered? Yeah. Are we having fun yet? Shit. And Steve Bryant had been claiming that there was prostitution and drug dealing and they're widespread in in New Vrindarban. But he was also pissed off because he blamed Keith for the breakup of his marriage and he just went around collecting a whole lot of stories from ex-followers to try and get as much dirt on Keith as he as he could. And then coincidentally, Keith's best mate murdered him. Yep. Yeah. I think he had, Bryant was, uh, yeah, he'd left. Although his wife and children, I think had stayed on the compound. And at one point he'd been like caught there, like brandishing a firearm and threatening to kill Keith. So they obviously had major beef and then he went off and yeah, he wrote, I think a confessional that was in a tell all that was going to describe all the terrible things that Keith himself with a child molester, I think was among the things he was alleging. And yes, our friend, our friend Drescher, who shot, stabbed, uh, hammered, uh, doused in acid Thank and you. buried the other guy, um, 
shoots Bryant uh, twice in the head while he's sitting in a van in LA. And just leaves him. He really shortened the list with that one. And also here's me saying boss swami when the whole time I could have been saying major beef. Damn it. (laughs) But and St. Dennis, the the acid dissolved one, he was asking Keith for the return of some like eighty thousand dollars that he'd given to Keith. So there's a lot of people have been murdered and doused in acid for less, I'm gonna say. I believe he was also perhaps alleged to be involved in cocaine dealing on, on the premises, St. Dennis. I think there was a lot of like, for a religion that didn't let anyone party, I think there was a lot of partying going on. Yeah, in for a penny, in for a pound. You can't have a cool haircut and not dabble. But Keith, he, he avoided conviction for a lot of this. There are a couple of... A couple of trials. So he's found in 91, he was found not guilty on the conspiracy to commit murders, but guilty to racketeering in the mail fraud. So Snoopy caps. Uh, wrist slaps for Snoopy caps. Oh, that's the T-shirt for this episode. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks. I've had a lot of practice. It was overturned on appeal later because... They argued that talking about Keith's homosexuality and mistreatment of women, fun, had prejudiced the jury because, look, I think, and the Hare Krishna movement isn't notorious for even kind of noticing that women are around, but mistreatment of women, I think the jury can know. I think they're allowed to know that. Seems, Seems fair. Yeah. So in between the original trial and the retrial, a couple of things didn't help him. So in 1993, he lost his grip on the community a bit more. He was discovered in the back of a Winnebago with a male follower and that was still generally or at least on paper frowned upon. The Winnebago incident. The Winnebago incident. That's, oh, that's such a great band name. Or also a good T-shirt. I mean, it's not a slogan, but it's a cool T-shirt. No, it's a band T-shirt. So yeah, he, he like in flagrante delicto or however they say it. He was he was caught yeah up to up to some funny business. With he's described as a young disciple. Now I don't think it was a minor, but I think yeah. someone considerably younger than him. Because there is there are well, it's almost said explicitly on the the Hari Krishna Murders podcast that Keith was also a child molester. But I I would hesitate to go into that too far because I haven't really found. There were certainly allegations that yes. he had, yeah that that he had been up to no good. Yeah. But I, yeah, I don't. That was never a convicted. That was not a charge he was convicted of. No. Although I think I should say I believe later the ISCON itself conducted an investigation and actually did conclude that he had yeah. Lost so he wasn't. It wasn't a legal thing, but it was a an internal thing. Right. But. Ugh. It was one of those things where you just read a you read a brief Wikipedia thing about Keith and you go, eh. But then you, the more you go into it, you just go, oh, oh, no, thank you. Yeah. Before his retrial, he pleaded guilty to the racketeering stuff and he was found guilty. But after the trial, he said, uh, this body is not mine. The body belongs to God and he can do with it as he pleases. And it's like, mm, God wants you to have sex in the back of a Winnebago, apparently. But good on you, God. 
Well, what's interesting after the first, so when he was convicted the first time, I think that nine of the 11 charges, the, the only ones they didn't get him on were the murders. Um, yeah. But while he was in jail for that period before the appeal, he continued to phone. They built like a special stand with a speaker on it. He would like phone in for the daily services from prison where he would continue really? to. And he would write lessons and mail them in. And like everyone continued to follow him from the temple from from the commune even when he was in jail and then he went under house arrest and then yeah like you said then on, on appeal and i should say for the americans listening his attorney in the appeal process was it was alan dershowitz who i don't know if, if in australia if you know him he is um a very famous lawyer involved in all kinds of high profile trials including the oj trial oh. and who is most infamous recently for not only being a very close associate of jeffrey epstein <gasps> but also of, of donald trump so he's just hanging out with all the cool kids. Yep. Keith hires him and gets him off. And Dershowitz gets him off. Although, as you said, later, the, yeah, the charges come back. He, he pleads guilty to several of them. And then I believe was sentenced to, to 12 years or 15 years. He's sentenced to 20, but it got reduced to 12 because Keith's health is a mess. And he served eight years of that. So he was released in 2004. So now Ishkan hates him. Thomas Drescher probably isn't a big fan. He's been in jail. He's been excommunicated. He's originally moved back to New York. And so then he just thought, mm, look, I'll go to India because they don't know me there. Or they only know me as as a, as a Swami. Because yeah. actually the interesting thing about Hare Krishna is that it like it like recirculated itself back to India and it became quite a large religion even within India. I believe there are quite a few Hare Krishnas today. So I think probably he had a large reputation there and felt like yeah. it was a safer place far away from the media that had been reporting on his, you know, no good deeds. And we should state that even though there's been little pockets of dodgy here and there, that generally New Vrindarban and Keith in particular mostly operated outside of the general administration of Ishkon. So generally seen as a separate non-affiliated thing but yeah look I just think maybe no religion is just the safest thing let's see it's hard to, it's hard to find one that doesn't have a lot of black marks on it that's for sure yeah I think it's safer just to drift along as a pagan well, well you know actually the 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 thing about New Vrindavan is that you know, Keith sort of sullied hit those dark years. And then after he left and all the charges, it like kind of fell into disrepair and became, you know, people continue to live there, but it was sort of a sad and broken mm. place. It's back. It's been brought back into ISKCON and I believe, and I haven't been there in a long time, but I've heard that it's been fixed up quite a bit. And actually the population is rising again. So it's again, Mecca is the wrong word to use here, but, but a, like, it's, it's quite an establishment for ISKCON within the United States and probably globally. Yeah, and so, I mean, they need volunteers to polish all the gold and everything. Oh, damn it. I want to go and visit now and have a look. You should. I mean, it's cool. It, it is It is a quite – it's both cool in its own right, but also when you see the, the setting, you know, I don't know what the equivalent in Australia would be, but where it's a place where you would definitely not expect to drive around a corner and find, mm. oh, whoa, there's a gold temple. Yeah, that's the thing. Religions, they're bad for autonomy but great for architecture. Truly. Yeah. It, it, and it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a curiosity now. I think even when I went there, I think it's been 20 years since I last visited, it was, it, you know, we sort of went there as like a, 
holy shit, I can't believe this place exists. And I think a lot of it's still that kind of tourism. But it is, again, a community of people. And yeah, they, really, they love cows a lot. That should be their T-shirt. We love cows a lot. Please come and visit. <laughs> We're going broke. Well, well, did you look at the, it's the, you know, the, 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 the five rules or components that Prabhupada dictated for the community. And the Number first one, one cow, is cow protection. Cow protection, which I love as a phrase, as an amazing phrase. Same. Cow protection. So the, I'll just read them for the listeners. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. I've got so these are basically rules that um, Prabhupada, the original Swami, set out um, for, for when the community was established. Number one, cow protection. Amazing. Number two, simple living. Number three, spiritual education. Number four, holy pilgrimage. And number five, loving Krishna. You'd think, I mean, Krishna is far below cows. <laughs> I love any priority list that has a god at number five, but a cow at number one. Look, I might convert. I'm all for that. Oh, that's amazing. I think, look, I'm amazed that, that Keith lasted as long as he did, but he eventually died in India in 2011 of a collapsed lung and kidney failure. And I don't think many people are upset about it. No, he was in a wheelchair. He was in terrible shape. Um, I mean, I, the, I should just like quick footnote on the new, like there was a four-year stop in New York between prison and mm. India. And he set up, it was almost like a return. He set up like a sad little sect in like, in some kind of, um, he, he was taken into to a temple somewhere and he had a tiny little following there. I mean, the crazy, the amazing, well, crazy and amazing thing mm. about, again, you know, this story too, is that like, no matter how bad some of these people are, they continue. There's always a group of people who yes. won't give up on Yes, that's one of the things, because I talked about the Buddha field the, from the Holy Hell Netflix documentary recently, and that sad last scene where he's on the beach with a tiny group of followers. It's just you start feeling sorry for them and then you remind yourself that, no, they're egotistical, power-hungry bastards. Well, aren't there, there's like like women who still dance outside Keith Raniere's prison, his yeah. jail cell in, in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, which is Keith Raniere is such a sad, hairy little nerd. You just think at least you pick something, pick someone hot. <laughs> that's, that's awful. <laughs> uh, but are there any random facts we've we've neglected to mention? Random, random, random facts. I'm talking random facts. I'm talking random facts about cults and that. Cults and that. That is the most perfect thing I've ever heard. Books have been, well, a book was written, so there is a lot to this. I mean, the 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 place itself has had quite a history, and and Keith, you know, Keith is the biggest and, and boldest character mm. in the history of of Krishna in America. But um, hey. yeah, I think I, the book is worth reading. There was a pretty great. It's based on a Rolling Stone story that had a great headline, which was "Dial Ohm for Murder." A mate. Oh, that's so great. Keith himself wrote a number of books and just to show how much fun he was, two of them were called uh, How to Say No to Drugs and Joy of No Sex. No, thank you, Keith. That's like how to just make sure there's no blips on your life graph. Yeah, those were not bestsellers. No. And they were, the Krishnas were expecting George Harrison to leave them $30 million in his will, but he didn't leave them anything. Oh, in 1985, Keith was beaten unconscious with an iron bar by a follower with 
who did have considerable mental illness, they were just laying some bricks and the and Mike, a guy called Mike Shockman just decided, eh, I'm going to cleanse the entire religion and beat this guy to death. And Keith was he in was a, a coma, coma for nearly a month. Yeah. yeah. And then he had like, like was hard of hearing. I think he was deaf in one ear and always, I mean, he already had polio as a kid. And then I think this further hobbled him. So yeah, you know, you've had, you know, the guy's had quite a life when we forget the story of him be, almost being yes. beat to death with a tire iron. <laughs> It's yeah, that's like Krishna compared to cows. It's so far down on the list. And um, there's also a great story. Um, now that th- this doesn't directly relate to Keith, although I, I guess everything does because he built New Vrindavan. And because he's the center of the universe, Josh. Early in its life, I believe this was like early 70s, like 72 or 73, a motorcycle gang actually descended upon and attacked the, the like laid siege to the place because a guy in Louisville, which is a city in Kentucky, whose daughter had been taken in by Hare Krishna and who was horrified and who was like determined to get her back. They like basically came to, to get her and fired weapons through the walls and didn't kill anyone, but injured a couple of Krishnas and actually pulled Keith out and told him to dig his own grave. They threatened to kill him. And then something happened and they all fled. And, you know, that was just a regular Saturday. Just a regular Saturday. And I did, I read about that and I read another person who said, you, they couldn't properly establish whether it was a motorcycle gang or whether Keith was exaggerating and it was just like two guys, <laughs> which is so, oh, it's classic Keith. And, Much cooler to make it a motorcycle gang. Yeah, imagine that. Oh, yeah, I was I was cut off in traffic by a motorcycle gang. He also, when he was first excommunicated by Ishkan, Keith started his own group which I think was just him and his boyfriend but they called it the first united church of Krishna youth organization underground mostly because the acronym was fuck you (laughs) (laughs) it's the only time I've liked Keith this whole research period it's quite a ride. I also like be highly skeptical of any religion that forbids sex. Let me tell you what those people are doing. They're still having sex. They're still having sex or they're not. And they're just trying, they're probably just fidgety as all hell. And those people are annoying. I don't want to upset any ancient global religions, but when you ban, when you forbid people from having sex, the like urges, unless you're going to castrate them, the urges are not going away. So, Bad things happen. Like, like, let's not mention any specific examples of ancient religions that forbid <laughs> their clergy from having sex. Mm. But like, what happens in those religions? Bad things happen, and they happen to the worst possible people. So, like, let's just say from this moment forward, I believe any religion that that sets out. Also, first of all, who would go into a religion that forbid sex? I just oh, don't that's understand a whole the other story. That. That's the thing. Have sex if you want. Don't have sex if you don't want to. Right. But once you ba- exactly. once you ban it. Mm, that's where the trouble starts. <sighs> Look, I've got to go and try and get the mantra out of my head. And this isn't going to help because in closing, I'm just going to say, Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, join a cult. Don't, don't join a cult. Thank you. That's great. Great advice. Although I, think I think you're now an honorary Krishna. Just by, if you say that 1,727 more times, you're an officially Krishna. Oh, God. I better wrap this up then. I've got shit to do. <laughs> Thank you so much, Josh. You've been listening to Zealot, produced by me, Joe Thornley, passively respecting cows. 
My co-host for this episode was Josh Dean, who has never, to my knowledge, been threatened by a motorcycle gang. Further reading and leaky temples can be found on the Zealot Facebook page. And music is by the Everglades, a man who reaches enlightenment the funky way with a keyboard. Moo. Mm.